Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Panadol. Panadol made in Ireland. Contains paracetamol. Always read the label and leaflet. Good morning. To start, a short, sharp news whip around. And a few notable reports. I know, stop press. But these ones really matter. First up, energy and the annual generation capacity statement from Airgrid, looking at supply and demand for the next 10 years. And the gap, they say, is stark and serious. Its chief executive, Mark Foley, joined Gavin on Morning Ireland. This has been building up over a number number of years and is due to two reasons. Number one is we have not delivered new generation gas, uh, gas generation capacity onto the market. It has not been successful over the last number of years. Over 600 megawatts has not been, has not uh, shown up. And secondly, the older plant is starting to wear and tear and is becoming increasingly unreliable. So we face a very difficult shortage over the next number of years. This is a 10-year plan, though. So how are we looking for this winter? So we have a tight winter. Let's be very clear tight. to your can listeners. You, can you guarantee there won't be blackouts? Can we week? guarantee? No, we cannot. I cannot give you that guarantee. But what I can say is we have deep experience amongst our team, both the Airgrid team and, and the ESB team. We have had experience of dealing with a very, very difficult winter last year. It will take an extraordinary confluence of events for the lights to go out. For example, very, very cold winter. No wind on a very, very cold January evening, for example. Or Christmas in, Eve, for this peak so demand. Our peak demand, uh, a situation where the interconnectors are not in our favour. For example, the, uh, the UK has a similar climatic conditions, etc. And a major fossil plant failing. So it's going to take quite an extraordinary confluence of events to lead to a situation where we don't have enough generation okay. capacity. That's energy. Now to housing and another report, this time from the state think tank, the ESRI, saying that house prices were overvalued by at least 7%. With Claire, Assistant Professor of Social Policy at Maynooth University and author of GAFs, Rory Hearn. They say one of the reasons for the overvaluation is the increased share of what they refer to as non-household purchasers in the market. And this includes investor funds, but it also includes the state to local authorities and housing associations. And the figure that the Department of Finance put on it for last year was that one in five of all homes bought last year were bought by non-households. So that was 11,600, half by investor funds and about half by housing associations and local authorities. And what this means is that in a context of people, ordinary people, being able, being less able to buy a home because of the cost of living, it, that these investor funds and the state still has capacity to buy. And so if we look at, for example, there was that estate in Swords that the Business Post highlighted last weekend, um, where investor funds were buying up individual homes and paying up to 800,000, up to 1.7 million in one instance for normal semi-Ds that should be going for 300, 400,000. So while you see, essentially, when we think back to the 2008 crash, we think that there was this huge amount of credit flowing into households, it was pumping up the house prices. But now we don't have that situation. There's not that credit going to households. People are even in a difficult situation to buy. But we do have an unlimited credit going to the likes of the institutional investors. And the state itself is buying up property. So that artificially, in a way, could keep house prices up. But I don't see how there can't be a fall in house prices when people's capacity to buy um, a home is going to be further cut back in terms of the cost of living. Um, But a further fall in supply, of course, will mean then 
there's less property to buy, which means that could maintain house prices. Yeah. But we are in a severe economic uncertainty, so it's very difficult to tell what will happen. So no certainty there. But in Hearn's view, all of this speaks to a bigger issue. And it comes back to my argument I've been making for a long time for a state construction company. We have to guarantee people of homes. We can't rely on the market, which is okay. acts rationally for itself but acts irrationally for people who need a home. And the, uncertain, the level of uncertainty that's out there, and we're going to hear it, the construction industry is going to be looking for more and more tax breaks for funds. The state really has to step in, I think. We'll return with Claire. And across the water, the ladies not for... Yeah, she was. Liz Truss on the tax cut U-turn and then, closer to home, a speech from ardent Brexiteer and a Minister of State in Britain's Northern Ireland office, Steve Baker. A sorry... Super sorry for his behaviour. He spoke to Gavin on Morning Ireland. What motivated you to apologise to Ireland and the EU and why now? Well, the motivation is that I recognise that in politics things move on best when we take the time and the trouble to understand the other person's point of view. And I recognise that uh, in my personal, and it was a personal apology, I recognise in my own uh, determination and struggles to get the UK out of uh, the European Union that I caused a, a great deal of inconvenience and pain and difficulty. And as I said, some of our actions uh, uh, were not very respectful of Ireland's legitimate interests. And I want to put that right. But I hope you won't and your listeners won't mind me saying what we're trying to do here is get a deal that respects all three strands of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. That includes a deal that works east-west. And unionists and loyalists have, have not reacted well to my apology. Yes, uh, I see that, because, yes. Yeah, and, um, but I would just say to them, you know, if we're going to be constructive here and get a deal that works for everyone, we've got to de-escalate these tensions. Okay. So that was my, that was my motivation. Mm-hmm. But Gavin has him on the naughty step. What exactly are you sorry for? I'm, I am sorry that relations between the United Kingdom and Ireland have been soured by the Brexit process. And I recognise that as the leader of the sort of 28, if I can put it in those terms, who uh, rejected Theresa May's deal three times, that caused enormous amounts of anxiety. And I recognise also that businesses in Northern Ireland ha- have faced a lot of cost through this process and uncertainty. Those are things I want to see put right. We can put okay. those right with a deal. For Morning Ireland. And as acknowledged by Steve Baker, unionists weren't happy at all with that humble pie and more cake in their craw when Liz Truss said she saw no reason why the executive instalment couldn't be reinstated immediately. Certainly a man who could give a few reasons as to why he felt that might not happen was Jim Allister of the TUV. He spoke to Cormac on drive time. It's not down to her in the sense that there can only be a Stormont executive if the parties buy into it and operate it. Well, she's and it's, suppo- it's supposed to operate on the basis of mutual consent. Well, I, I, there is no consent from the unionist community and therefore there can be no executive. Let me put it to you like this. Mm-hmm. If, if in your country, in the 26 counties of the Irish Republic, you were told that it wouldn't be laws made in Dublin governing the manufacture of your goods, governing the sales of your goods, governing the trade rules of your goods. It would be laws made in the United Kingdom that you couldn't change and uh, that they would be enforced upon you. And that's how your economy would operate. I don't think there'd be too many of your listeners. Well, uh, apples and oranges. Uh, Apples uh, and oranges, uh, Jim. Because there are some people... Well, if I can get a question out. If I can get a question out. 
There are some people in uh, Northern Ireland who would see that exactly as the case, but they live with the status quo and the, the legislation that is passed from Westminster, for example, because that is the law in that jurisdiction. But the difference here is that you promoted Brexit. Brexit happened in a democratic referendum and people are living with the consequences. But Liz Trust now as Prime Minister sees that the consequences are that the Northern Ireland Protocol is being implemented and she's getting down to negotiation now, whether you like it or not, to make this happen. Well, I thought you were a monologue over. Let me deal with those points. Indeed. Sharp intake of breath. Tension. On you go, sir. Northern Ireland didn't get Brexit. We got a protocol which denied us Brexit. Brexit was about taking back control. In Northern Ireland, we didn't take back control. We left control in a foreign jurisdiction, namely in Brussels. Subject to foreign laws that we don't make and can't change. Now, I repeat the point. No self-respecting Democrat in your country would accept being governed by laws that they don't make and can't change, governing things things as elementary Mm -hmm. as how you package your goods, how you manufacture your goods, how you sell your goods. Now, that is an offence to anyone who believes that they are entitled to be governed within their own country by their own laws. You just can't can't dismiss it by saying it may be. The reality but, is but, this. but Jim, there with are, respect, it's not me who's. It's not Northern me. Ireland. It's not me. It doesn't matter if I dismiss it or not. It seems now to be dismissed by Liz Truss. She says she sees no reason that the storm well, at Assembly can't. Well, multiple reasons. Well, she's obviously but, taking that on board and disregarding it, and not alone that. And on it went. The protocol is destroying our economy. It is treating our other part of our nation as a foreign country. That's the basis upon which the protocol operates. That is unbearable for anyone of a unionist persuasion. Mm-hmm. And it would be unbearable for any unionist minister to have to, have to implement the partitioning of the United Kingdom. Well, can I, it's not going to happen. I, I want to tap your, your brain on this, uh, Jim, because it seems that the... The uh, British government, Liz Truss, is now preparing to sideline unionism, ploughing ahead with a negotiated settlement on the protocol with the European Union. You and if, if, if you don't like it, if, this is me paraphrasing, she says, there, there will be an election in uh, quite soon. Bring it on. So there. And in London this week, we had the British Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, over for dinner. A working dinner, mind you, all at the Irish Embassy. And at the head of the table, Foreign Minister Simon Coveney. And he joined Anya yesterday. You tweeted out a picture and a message after your meeting with Mr Cleverly. There were smiles. You said it was a, hand, a pleasure. There was the two fags, the handshake. Yet yeah, you spoke about issues of cooperation. So the mood music has changed, has the substance. And the diplomatic response will go with cautious optimism. There's a lot of warm language at the moment. Um, I don't think we should get carried away with that, uh, but I certainly think we should recognise that there is a genuine effort coming from this new team in the British government uh, to try to reach out to Dublin and indeed to Brussels. But time will tell whether, there, whether of course, the compromises necessary to get a deal uh, are possible. Do you agree with Tónish de Varadkar that the protocol is too strict, that it's working without being fully implemented? Were unionist politicians right all along? 
Well, no, I mean, I don't. Uh, I think it's clear uh, because of the compromises that have come from the EU uh, in recent months um, that that they're willing to to look at more flexibility and support a lot more flexibility in terms of how the protocol is implemented than was the position at the start. So, you know, Leo is right on that, um, and I think that is part of you know the EU's messaging that look, we know that this at the outset uh, was something that was going to be difficult to implement. Mar Sefcovic, who's the key negotiator on the EU side, has already published a number of papers uh, to show that the EU is willing to be a lot more flexible. So I think, you know, Leo is just mm-hmm. stating a fact. From yesterday's Morning Ireland. Also in the news this week, the state's witness protection programme. Introduced in 1997, it has been used here in at least 20 instances, very possibly more, and can involve anything from guard monitoring to a complete relocation abroad. Crime correspondent with the Irish Times, Conor Gallagher, told Claire about the cold, hard reality of becoming someone else. It'll typically be an English-speaking country just for um, the, the sake of that person being able to fit in and make a new life for themselves there easily. Uh, uh, the guards will have relationships with police forces in those countries. Um, they will set you up uh, you know, with a job, uh, a place to live, maybe a training course, a car, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and it they sounds, Connor, when you say that, you know, they'll set you up with those things, that it could be quite a nice life. That's what it sounds like on the surface. But that's not the case, is it? No, no, generally speaking, it's not. So one of the principles of the witness protection program is the like for like principle. So that that basically says that uh, they will set you up with the standard of living you're used to in Ireland. Uh, So if you're on social welfare in Ireland, you can expect to be on a similar standard of living in wherever you're being uh, sent to. Now, they will uh, pay for things and, uh, you know, each program is tailor made. But uh, so they they might pay for things like for you to do a training course to reskill, you know, something like that. If you have addiction issues, they might put you in rehab. They might pay for a therapist if you have psychological issues. They might pay for driving lessons, that sort of thing. But the the idea is to get you on your feet and actually get you uh, out of the program or out of the financial support aspect of the programme as soon as possible. So they really try to avoid big lump sums, anything like that. And the reason why that's important is they have to avoid the impression that they're giving you a financial reward for your evidence because Mm -hmm. the courts have said that you can't do that. So as Claire asked, where then is the incentive? But they also have to make it attractive in some way so that people will be keen to use it if they have valuable evidence. Yeah, well, attractive might even be be, be be the wrong word because, you know, it, the way it was described to me uh, this week, you know, while, while doing a bit of research was, you know, it's not, it's not a good life. It's it's a pretty horrendous life. One one person with knowledge at a program said to me he wouldn't wish it on his worst enemy. And another described, you know, a situation where a handler was going to visit a witness in a, in a different country and they went to check in their fridge and the only thing in the fridge was a stick of butter, you know. And so people have really tough lives in this in, in, in this programme. So glamorous upgrade it is not. Conor Gallagher with Claire. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Hindo three, because Hindo three. Are you right back there in the cold school hall? 
Well, the competitive world of Irish dancing was sweating in the spotlight with allegations of competition fixing and cheating now being investigated by the Irish Dancing Commission on Commission Le Rinky Gaelica. Serious stuff. And with that on Liveline, a glimpse into the lengths you need to go to for the fashioner. What has costumes, fake tan, gaffer tape wrapped around, around your feet? Someone said now uh, uh, spray tan is used to contour the leg. Some, some young girls wear two wigs when they're performing. Some of them wear, put glue in their shoes to keep the socks uh, in, in place. What, is, what has this got to do with Irish dancing? Fair point. But as callers told Joe, you need the rig out. Arlene's daughter has been dancing since the age of four and the better you dance, the more elaborate the garb. Wigs, for example. They kind of come through the stages and junior levels and they might put on a little bun. Um, but as you go to open, it's expected to really put on one of these very high um, buns. You know, it's, it's again, it's an image. It's an image that is filtered down from world champion level. It's very Americanized. And I just think it's such a pity children with the most beautiful hair are being... Not, now, there's nobody making them, but it's, you're mm-hmm. given this very strong impression. If you don't do this, if you don't put your hair right up with these wigs on top, you know, you just won't get the marks, no matter what a wonderful dancer you are. And don't forget the gaffer tape. Yes, you did hear correctly. The children are asked to tape shoes with this black electrician, black and white electrician tape. They say it's to stop the shoe coming off, but I mean, it's actually an aesthetic thing. It's to give the impression of length to the leg on the stage, on the podium for the judges. Also on the line, world dance champion Leila Healy. And even if you don't want to, you kind of have to put on the Guna Jazz. I remember my mum always saying when I was growing up and when I started dancing, no, she'll never wear a wig, she'll never wear, you know, the makeup yeah. and stuff like that. Um, I suppose it's just when... I know it's terrible to say and it, you shouldn't be like that in yeah, today's society be. because you you don't want kids to follow other kids, you know, yeah. um, be it media or whatever. But when one person is doing it and they get the result and, yeah. you know, um, a school brings out a trend, other schools want to follow. And I suppose that's how, you know, you've gone down the route of not the traditional dresses without sparkles. Um, but now, like, there's diamantes, there's pearls, there's everything on costume. It's not just a little traditional Celtic design that you would have had I know, many years ago. Yesterday we heard some costumes costing between three and €6,000. Yeah, no, it is. It's very, very expensive. And then Emma, a competitive dancer from Australia. And at that level, the dresses are designer. I was four when I started and I did have the kind of ring curls that we all wore to bed when we were younger. But then the wigs came in. And then as the years kind of progressed, the dress designs became more elaborate and more expensive. And then sometimes as the years went on, um, they became almost sort of identifiers as different dress designers, as favourite, like um, famous dress designers. And so, you know, if you had a certain dress designer you were wearing at the World Championships, people would sort of be like, oh, that's a very famous dress designer. And so it all sort of became really about the sort of glitz and glamour and the look of the dancer that was the most important. Mm. And, yeah, it's kind of shot ahead of the dancing, which, again, is just unfortunate. And this insight from Breege, who has both competed and taught. Listen, Joe, I know women who nearly pull the hair up one another's heads. I know mothers who haven't spoken for a lifetime. And I can tell you, I didn't travel very far to see that. 
And while the costumes are full on and the fervour, nothing terribly new there. But what about those allegations of competition fixing and favours now under investigation? Well, of the many callers who got in touch, few seemed surprised. Here's Mary, who has competed at world championship level. And what do you think of these serious allegations which have emerged all week? And, and, and as I say, the statement from the CLRG, which is jaw-dropping, as I said on Monday, um, to talk about uh, offering, allegedly offering various inducements to promote dancers to, or they don't say what the inducements are, to a higher than deserved placing at particular competitions. This grossly, un, uh, this grossly unethical behaviour must be eliminated from our dance genre. Is the, is the adjudication process in the CLRG now tainted? Well, my experience was many years ago, um, mm-hmm. and that's what I wanted to highlight. This is nothing new. This has been going on for over... This, I'm talking about th- over 30 years ago. But now I, that it's come to a head with this statement from the Commission saying uh, grossly unethical behaviour must be eliminated, is the judging... Con- there's the... The, the Munster and Leinster's I think are on in a few weeks the World Championship uh, qualifiers is the adjudication process tainted until we get this report from this judge? It's, it's absolutely tainted and it, they really have to you know make the changes like they did in America where people were judging who didn't know the dancers and yeah. who didn't know the ta- dancing teachers and huge changes required and I knew all along in all the years I danced for about 20 years and I knew it was very unfair and what was going on but I loved it and that's what kept yeah. me going okay. and okay. Understand that, that was really yeah. uh, it's very, it's very very unfair so they really it'll take them a lot of work to put in place the steps that need to be put in place to fix it From Liveline Now to two stories that, depending on where your head is at, will either inspire you or send you right back to bed thinking, thank God, that's not me. First up, Damien Brown. 16 weeks rowing over 3,000 miles across the Atlantic from New York to Galway. 112 days, 99 of which he was entirely alone. He landed up on rocks at Neferbica shortly before 1am on Monday, so not quite the plan in fairness, but he was home job done. He spoke to Brian on the news at one. What were those conditions like, Damien? The, nor- the North Atlantic, e- even at this time of the year, I, I would think enormously challenging. You- this was a tiny boat. I-, I-, I can't explain how challenging they were, to be honest. I, I don't think I had much luck. Um, obviously, it's the North Atlantic, right? And it's it's very changeable. Um, and every change I seemed to get was negative, you know, just constantly headwinds or countercurrents or um, adverse currents. So it was incredibly stressful because you would work so so hard like you put so much into getting one mile two miles and then I'm even getting emotional even thinking back and then you know you could come off the oars for 15 minutes and you could have half of that mile wiped out uh, and you'd have to kind of put the head down again and try and regain it and that was for months like it ended up like that just if it wasn't counter currents it was headwinds on the second half I just got so much um, adverse conditions that it was just a, a fight from basically the whole way along. Ooh, and just have a listen to how all of that impacted on his body. I think the biggest effect it probably has is on your hands because you are kind of 
gripping with, a, you know, a serious degree of force, at least the oars, because they can be popped out of your hand very easily if you're not, you know, so you have to actually grip them. So your hand kind of over time just molds into this kind of claw-like um uh, uh, feature I suppose or a claw like mm. position and then uh, at night you know I so I try and sleep for like five hours at a night um, um, you get awful pains as, as the um, expedition ran on I get a lot of pain from my hands that I have to try and massage out and then that first kind of half an hour on the oars in the morning would be um, again just painful until you get a bit of blood flow into the ligaments and tendons of your hands and then you get a lot of muscle mass loss you know on the musculature that's getting mm. less used or not used at all so I, I'm not sure how much I lost but it looks like I lost close to like 30 kilos of, mm. of body weight and then the, <laughs> the thing obviously you're sitting down for 12 hours 11 12 hours a day so um, that takes its toll you know you get a lot of sea sores uh, uh, which aren't, aren't pleasant more ouchy but then finally a familiar landscape I was as north as Clifton in terms of coordinates at one point but mm. then I got hit with these northwesterlies and they put over four days on on sea anchor they just pushed me um southeast and then one morning I wake up and there's uh, Skellig Michael um you know you can't you can't not, not uh, recognize Skellig Michael and I was like wow and it was a beautiful sunrise like so um you know I've been waiting for that it wasn't I didn't expect to see Skellig Michael first but I've been waiting for the view of Ireland for a long time so mm. yeah it, it was very um well special moment. Welcome home. I'm sure all your, your family and your friends are just delighted to see you safely back on, on terra firma. An amazing achievement. And by the way, this was his second, yes counted, second crossing of the Atlantic. Of course it was. He'd already taken the jaunt from San Sebastian to Antigua in 2018. As you do. And for more ways to feel maybe just a little inadequate, we give you Pat Lawless. He is taking part in the Golden Globe race and wants to become the first Irish skipper to sail around the globe solo and non-stop. And the Darcy Show are the exclusive media partners fancy. But with that, quite a few rules. We only have a 15-minute window of opportunity. Um, And I'll just read out some of the stipulations here. You agree uh, to not share any information with the skipper including any entrant GPS, we don't have it, or leaderboard position, we don't have it. Any information relating to weather, current or future or routing or general information not available to the skipper. So we can talk to Pat and see how he's getting on, but we can't say much to him and he can't say much to us and we can't relay greetings from his family. It's, 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 it's all very odd, but they're the rules. Them be the rules. But all of that sorted, they make contact with Pat on the high seas. He has a broken rib. He hit the doldrums, the actual doldrums. It was going through the doldrums, you get squalls, serious squalls, which rain showers. Yeah. And if you're racing, you're trying to carry as much sail as possible in the dark, you can't see them coming. Okay. And when they hit you, they hit you. Tell us what you can see. Is it is it water as far as the eye can see there? All water as far as the eye can see. There's a bit of sun today. I haven't been getting much sun. But there is sun today, which is good. And, yeah, I have just tacked, uh, not a purpose, winds are very light and the boat has just gone, come about. I bet they're gone okay, on, I could have okay. back in course. Right here. But no, it's fine. How was the sleep? Sleep is fine. I sleep. At this stage, I haven't seen a ship in days and days. Right. Boat, and I have an alarm if a ship comes along, I have two of them. So I sleep for about an hour at a time and just get up and check things. 
Yeah. Earlier in the time, it would be 20 minutes, but I sleep now for an hour and I get up and check things. And okay. That's, yeah. And you'll be stiff getting up because the back is sore. Yeah. <laughs> but I, once you move a bit, it's fine. Ooh, sounds tough going. And he is alone. All alone. Except for the sea life. Have you got into a rhythm? I would, yeah. This is my, there's a lot of firsts in this. This is my first time being this long solo. Right. Over a month, three weeks was the longest before. I've seen a lot of um, things I haven't seen. Like, I've seen the turtles swimming along. Wow. There's lots of turtles. They're beautiful. And, like, I'd be struggling, well, not struggling, to navigate with the sexton is kind of an effort. And they're just going somewhere, and they know where they're going. And they don't need any <laughs> navigation equipment. <laughs> But they're gorgeous. They have yeah. a, a fair hump on their back now and yeah. a little head they'll be looking at you. Because you're staying over beside them to say hello to them, they, they dive away and they go away from you. Yeah. But they look really awkward until they dive. They, they're splashing along, but they, they're gorgeous. And, Amazing. Oh, the flying fish are fantastic and the dolphins. But given that Ray is pretty much Pat's only point of contact for the next while, well, it was kind of hard to hang up. Is there anything else you want to talk about, Pat? Seems happy here. I'm, 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 I'm reluctant to say goodbye to you because I know you don't. You know, well, you're talking to the other contestants. I know, but uh, just to let you know that Man City beat Man United over the weekend six three. Uh, Munster won. Uh, Leinster lost. It was a very close game against Cardiff. If you follow the rugby, I'm just trying to think of anything else. Would you? Yeah. Now it was against. It was against the Greb, so uh, they, they would have been expected to win anyway. But uh, so, so that's about it. Uh, we pe- we pizza on Saturday night instead of Friday night because I was out on Friday night. Just so you know. <laughs> Listen, Pat. We 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 we'll we'll talk to you soon. Chit-chatting on the high seas. It's not easy. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Jan Morris featured on Bowman on Sunday. Born in 1926 as James Morris, in the late 1960s, the adventurer and travel writer transitioned genders. She spoke to Gayburn about her memoir, Pleasures of a Tangled Life. I originally tended to do it simply as a collection of essays about happy things, about nice things I've enjoyed. But as I wrote the book, I thought this was rather a waste. For years and years, I tried to dismiss the first half of my life altogether and to forget all about it and to start entirely afresh. And then I thought, when I was writing this book about things I've enjoyed, that the things I've enjoyed must all have been conditioned by the fact that I've had this rather strange life. And that's why I called it Pleasures of a Tangled Life. And as I wrote them and realized how ambiguous many of these pleasures are, how equivocal they are, I realised that it was more like an autobiography than a collection of essays, and that's what it's turned out to be. Yes, uh, laying old ghosts a bit. Absolutely, which particular really old ghosts? The whole, the whole first part of your life as James Morris. Would that be one of them? Not that so much as the sort of introduction that you gave me before I came on. You know, I'm sick to death of people always introducing me as somebody who wants to change states, when in fact my life is a very full and rich life. It's a professional life of of some complexity, it's a happy family life. I wanted to get rid utterly of that whole business once and for all, but at the same time recognising that it has affected me and has made me different from other people. All well and good, but Gabo isn't having it. It really is so extraordinary that you can't forget it, Jan. 
You cannot dismiss it just like that. I mean, in describing your time, that whole process before, during and after, that whole, whole conundrum period, you say in the book, in this new book, that you found yourself sexually entertained as never before or since. Now, could you explain that for me? Yes, I will explain that. But first I'm going to say that the part which refers to anything sexual at all in this book forms only one chapter yes. in it. It's only a minute bit of it. Yes. Now I will explain it, yes. I found that when I was even more equivocal than I am now, that people of both sexes or genders felt curiously drawn to me, rightly or wrongly. It was partly, I think, because neither side felt threatened, you know. Uh, and so they were at ease with me, and I was at ease with them. And so for a period when I was most distinctly an ambiguous person, to my great surprise, I found it was rather enjoyable. Why was it enjoyable? For that reason, I think, that people didn't feel that I threatened them, that they felt obscurely close to me. Perhaps everybody, you know, well, for one thing, nobody is absolutely one sex or the other. There's no doubt about it. There's overlap of some sort. And for another thing, perhaps people, especially at that period, were just a little bit bored with the old rigidities, the absolute polarity of the sexes. And when they saw somebody who seemed to have broken away from it, maybe for a time anyway, it... it uh, rather pleased them. Mm. Maybe sort of soothed them, I think, oddly yeah. enough. Jan Morris has heard on Bowman on Sunday. Over on Mooney Goes Wild, an email from a listener pulling them up on their use of gender pronouns. Have a listen. Dear Derek and panel, I always enjoy listening to this programme and thank you for all your commitment to the natural world and the interesting ways you bring this to listeners. Well, that's a good start. Mm-hmm. There's a but coming. I'm emailing to check an observation pertaining to the gender of animals. Hmm. Is there an assumption that nearly all animals referred to are male, or might some be female but referenced male? I'm wondering if there is a normative naming of animals as he. 40 minutes into the programme, she goes on. Richard references a leopard seen some time ago. The leopard is identified as he, and therefore implied gendered male. It seems that animals gendered female, or she, are somewhat invisible. Is Michel Amas Philomene... Well now, what will they make of this? First up, Aina. I have to say she has a point. Um, and what really infuriates me is when people are talking about bees and bumblebees and worker bees and they call them he when everybody knows that the, they're all female and it isn't just happening on our programme perhaps I mean emails come in all the time they're always referring to what is this little guy and what is this and always referring to everything as male and I suppose it comes from the pursuit long ago of people always being described the humans being all described as males because the males were the only ones that ever did anything but it's, it's, it's a bad habit and I don't approve of it at all As you might expect Definitive. Richard, on the other hand... I prefer to use the word it where possible. It's anthropomorphism to call an animal a he or a she. Mm -hmm. It should be simply called it, but it's very impersonal. If we yeah, want to be... yeah, yeah, yeah. But in the email it says, uh, 40 minutes into the programme, Richard references a leopard seen some time ago. Again, the leopard is identified as he and therefore implied gendered male. Oh dear, oh dear. I don't know why I thought it was a male. Anyway, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Ten <laughs> lashes. And finally, Noel Hatch. 
I think it does come down to unconscious gender bias, which uh, is a, a problem all throughout society, and it is something that we all do need to overcome. So, he, she, it, they, what are they going to go with? Here's Ringmaster Derek. Well, in future, guys, if we don't know if it's a he or a she, are we all going to say it? Probably, yes, indeed, I would imagine, if we have to be on our P's and Q's. Richard? Well, I should depend on the context, oh. I think. All I right, think okay. <laughs> Remember, in the, in the case of birds, the glamorous plumaged ones are the males. So when you're scanning a flock, you'll see a shoveler. Oh, there's a shoveler there. It's a male, mm-hmm. of course. Not always. You're, by and large, it is the males that are glamorous, that attract attention, and that are known. The females mm. are the drake, less the well duck, known. the male is very colourful, and the female is. is drab. Drab, yeah, that's the good example of it. So, so just to be fair to everybody, from now on, we should say it unless we are sure. Are we all agreed on that? Yeah, yeah. fine. OK, thank you very much indeed. Now, let's move on. <laughs> from Mooney Goes Wild. And then we come to the new book from Moncon McGann. It's called Listen to the Land Speak, A Journey into the Wisdom of What Lies Beneath Us. And he's inviting us to rethink our entire relationship with landscape, starting maybe with rivers. Modern humans have been so successful by this looking at nature through an exploitative lens. Mm. And that's led to our great cities, our great advances. So the Shannon, how can we build industry on it? How can we tap it to produce electricity? But we look back in the myths or just the stories we preserved and it seems like first in Irish, all of the rivers have female names, all of them. And a lot of them are actually goddesses. So the Shunan is Shunna, a goddess, or Shananya. Shananya is this ultimate goddess and monster. So it's either Shunna, which is a young goddess, or Shananya, which is old Anya. And she is manifested in the landscape in the form of the Shannon, in the same way as the Boin is the goddess Boin or Boinda. And Boinda means bow, means cow. Fin means fair or white or transparent. In other words, being able to access knowledge, to see through the veil. So, and that Bowen, Bowen, the mother goddess who's representing the landscape by this goddess, she's the exact same goddess that you find in India called Govinda, a form of Krishna, yeah. because we share the same culture, you know, back like five to six thousand years ago before we moved out um, and, you know, spread farming in both directions. And then like the Ban, Bad the Bandan, that's all Bandia. They're all goddesses. So... You can imagine a people, our ancestors, who saw the land as sacred. They were walking by a river and they realised it was just this sacred entity. And the reason why it was sacred, well, I presume some mystical reasons, but also it nourished the soil. It provided water for the crops. So it was giving all of the benefits of gods to the people to allow them flourish. Yeah. Then you gave gifts to it, which is why when they when they do excavations under any of the, these rivers, when they retreat, you find these masses of shields, of swords, of, of bones, of carved items given in offering to the river. And just imagine if we even took an element of that back today and started thinking, oh, these rivers aren't just resources to exploit. They're not just resources to pump nitrates into and get the nitrates elsewhere, but actually they're may be magical, or at least that they are, they have their own integrity. Now, Mancon acknowledged that so much of our culture and heritage is based on patriarchal structures, be it Druids or Christianity. However, with a bit of digging, we discover something older. 
This story, this book, I thought, listen to Landspeak, I'll just bring out the old myths, the myths of Finn McCool and Cúchol and cite them, talk about them in particular locations and Bob's your uncle, the job's done. But the minute I looked at all these, under every single one of these stories about a male god, Cúchol or Finn, there's a female goddess. There's, like the whole of Munster is about Anya. This, and Anya is the genitive of Anne, which means brightness or light. So Anya is basically, it's the warmth of the sun. Ireland was settled after the climate warmed nine, ten thousand years ago the warmth moved up and people moved up with it. And so the god of this sun coming from the south, coming from the south every year after the darkness of winter, was their primary, you know, their cry worship sound. And that was represented by Anya. Also Anya and Grania. And Grania means grain. Uh, so it's to do with these people, the Neolithic people who brought farming, kind of seven, eight thousand years ago, and then us, the Bronze Age people. We brought all of these stories with us about these female goddesses at the time. And everywhere you go, there's either a kind of story in most locations about about Eru or Etna or Anya or Grania or Boinda or Fola. But then on top of those were put these male stories. And of course they were, because the Druids were interested in, the, in, in focusing on the male. Mm. The monks were interested in focusing on the male. And so we hid the whole idea of the Bridget, or the Kailach, the, the old, 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 ultimate mother goddess who controlled everything. That is interesting. And Moncon wondered that if we could just reimagine ever so slightly what we thought we knew for certain, other possibilities might emerge. You know the way the, the Stone Age, the, the ceremonial or ritual sites, like Newgrange or Nowth or Douth or Loch Crewe. So they're all this big pregnant belly rising up out of the belly. And even Brune the Boina, Brune the Boina. Brew means, Brew means a fairy fort or it means a youth hostel. But Brew is also Bryn, it's also the womb. So these are womb sites. Okay, and you remember you have a tunnel going into the centre, and in the centre of the belly, the rise belly, you have this little sacred womb site. And at the solstice or the equinox, depending on the the ritual ceremony, we call them tombs often. But very few people were there; weren't very many dead bodies. There was, you know, the ashes of maybe one or two leaders. But they were they were more ritual sites than tombs. Anyway, the sun on the solstice or equinox enters the passageway, and the sun is always a male in most cultures. The sun, the hot sun, is a male. Enters the almost the the vaginal passage, the passage entranceway of the woman into impregnates the womb, where all these you know um, symbols, sacred symbols are, and that gives birth to a new thing of life. And, you know, when you have farming people who are depending absolutely on the sun coming in March, warming the body of the female earth to allow new growth to happen. <laughs> it seems I, to make I, sense. I, no, I, I, I'm actually completely there with you in, in your description is so vivid. Uh, it's a victory for the womb over the tomb, isn't it? In, 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 <laughs> is, no, in terms yeah, of yeah. What, what history has said. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's and a tomb, it, it's the war, it's, it's, it's the war dead or whatever. You're saying, well, actually... It's, Possibly. I mean, we, we, it's, this, we've had, like I said, about a thousand years of great male expertise deciphering all of these. And it'll be interesting then for maybe a new gaze to come and see, yeah. is it more feminine than we think? That is one to ponder. But there was, of course, one texter for whom all these lady rivers, a step too far, where are the male rivers? What about the men? There was one, but you might not like the sound of it. Here's one for Mancon. Locally on Sulon in Ballyvorney is known as a male river in County Cork. It may be the only one. That's right. Yeah, um, Irlo Linard says that too. But then I met someone else from Ballyvorney who says that on Sulon is actually, yeah, he, he, he'd based that. But yeah, there's yeah. a lovely example, the one, uh, the, the one example in, in Cork that, uh, of a male river. The rebel county yeah, has a male Yeah, and Sulon just means, it means sort of a nasty, dirty stream of a thing. <laughs> <laughs> which is great okay. that it's male. <laughs> 
That is funny. The only male river is a dirty streak of a thing. Okay. Monk on again with Ryan and we are almost at a finish here on Playback and far be it from us to stoke the fire of the gender wars. But this week saw the death of country legend Loretta Lynn so we'll just have to end on this. Here she is with Conway Twitty and a thigh-slapping classic. Are you the reason I'm riding around on recap tires? 